Welcome to another edition of the Law and Gospel Devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen. I'm a pastor here at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a contributor to 1517 in numerous ways, including making these videos each and every Tuesday to look at God's two words throughout all of Scripture. Recently, we've been spending quite a few, uh, quite a bit of time in the epistle texts for the upcoming Sunday's lectionary readings. And indeed, that's going to be the case again this Sunday as we look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 of that passage. And really, I mean, if I could narrow down what, what this passage is all about, well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. Uh, it's really all about the church. Uh, it's Paul giving instructions to the church, well, really about how to be in the fellowship together, uh, but it also is, uh, Paul also harkens back to the confession that the church has. He talks about the gifts that the church has. And then, and then he closes it out by talking about the purpose of the gifts that are given to the church. And so, so let's go ahead and dive right into that and see what Paul has to say to us in this week's Long Gospel devotional. First of all, he acknowledges or talks about the fellowship right up front. Now, it's not like the fellowship of the ring, although it is a fellowship in the same way that they are united by a common cause. Indeed, what unites us is our common cause found in Christ. And so we read verse 1, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, as Paul is writing from prison, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, these are great instructions. And indeed, you want to have a healthy community. You want to have a healthy fellowship. Well, you can't, you can't really do better than trying to aim for the things that Paul mentions here. First of all, he, he talks about humility. Uh, you may have heard the catchy little phrase, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less and indeed, you may have even heard it attributed to C.S. Lewis. In fact, that's not the case. C.S. Lewis didn't say that, although he said something similar. What he did say is found in the quote directly next to the picture. If you want to know what it looks like to be humble, well, this is how Lewis says you begin. He says about a person who's humble, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Ah, so if we're going to have any humility at all or display any of that to our fellow Christian, well, then it's going to begin by confessing our problem, and that is pride. Indeed, Lewis goes on. He says it's a biggish step. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, man, Lewis is really hammering us here. If you think you're not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Well, all right, I'll take my medicine. But yes, the first step to being a humble person with your fellow Christian is indeed to recognize that by nature you're not, not even close. But that's not all Paul tells us to strive to display towards our fellow Christians. He tells us to be gentle. And, and really, the, the word here is, you know, the, it carries the connotation of being caring and, 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 and being, uh, being careful, being, 
you know, gentle in the way that we deal with one another. The word here is the same one used in Galatians chapter six, verse one, that tells us to be gentle if we're, uh, as we seek to restore someone who's fallen into transgression. So the idea is that we're coming to people not with a spirit of judgment, not with a spirit of I'm better than you, you're worse than me, but we're recognizing that we all need each other. And then Paul says, be patient with one another. Uh, folks, Paul wouldn't have to say these things if this was automatically happening in the church, um, which implies that indeed there were people that weren't very patient with each other and there were people that weren't being very gentle with each other and there were people that weren't being, being very humble towards one another. Indeed, I mean, there's a reason that patience is referred to or can be translated long-suffering. It's hard. It's hard when somebody's testing your patience. And in any human community, it will happen, including the church. And so Paul says, bear with one another in love. And I love this because the word for bear with one another literally could be translated tolerate one another or put up with one another. <laughs> so there's no sort of romantic idealism about the church being a perfect community in which everybody's always just going to be 1000% enamored with each other. There's going to be struggles and there's going to be fights and there's going to be tension sometimes. Indeed, there should be an attitude that says, sometimes I wonder how you put up with me. Then I remember, oh, I put up with you. So we're even. It's just this recognition that we're all sinner saints. We're all simultaneously saints and sinners in this body of Christ. And therefore, we're going to be prone to falling short of what we ought to do. Nevertheless, the reason Paul wants the church to strive for these characteristics is because it maintains unity. Indeed, he wants us to be eager to maintain that unity. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling really is to walk in no less of a way than the way Christ walks. If you think about all the terms Paul uses here, it's really descriptive of Jesus. He is humble, Philippians 2, 4 through 11 says. He is gentle. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 tells us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Why? Because I am gentle. That's what he says. He's patient. Oh, man, is he patient. In fact, the only reason that you exist right now, uh, that you are a Christian right now, that we're still here on this earth, is because he is patiently hoping or desiring that more would come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says. And indeed, he puts up with us, Psalm 86, 15 tells us that he is long-suffering. And indeed, if you don't believe it, just look at the whole entire Old Testament. And why does he do it? Because he wants to save us. So, you know, it's easy. I could just end this devotion right now and say, you go do the same. Go do the same. Have a great week. Ready? Go team. But of course, Paul doesn't operate that way. Paul doesn't just simply command the church to do something. No, Paul, it's almost like he has an allergy. It's like he's allergic to just leaving the church with law. He has to anchor them in who they are, in their truest identity again and again and again. So every time he tells them like, do this or don't do this, strive for this, immediately after he'll just sort of ground them in the gospel. And the, indeed, that's what he's going to do with the rest of the passage. So, so if you pick it up at verse four, you're going to see the first thing he reminds them of is their common confession. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Why ought you strive to maintain unity? 
because you have been brought into something that is united. There is one common confession. There is one God, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, etc. Let's break that down real carefully or real quickly. There is one body. Yes, there's many different denominations. And yes, there's many different kinds of Christians with many different expressions of worship. But in the final analysis, there is only one body. What unites that body? That they know who Jesus is and what he's done for them. They know they need Jesus. That's the one body. There is one spirit. The idea is that we all have the commonality of being filled by the same Holy Spirit. There is one hope. No, it's not Leia's hope to be rescued by Obi-Wan. It's the hope of Jesus rescuing us. Indeed, there's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one, there's one Christian faith. And there's one person that we place our faith in, like the adulterous woman did to Jesus. Indeed, there is one baptism, whether you were baptized as a baby or whether you're baptized as this man was at 110 years old. Folks, there is no difference because what makes a baptism is two things, water and the word. The word that tells us we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is the baptism. No, there's no other baptism. Don't, no, I know some people say, well, there's the water baptism, there's the spirit baptism. No such thing. No, you were given the spirit at your water baptism. Indeed, you're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And finally, there's one God and Father overall. Notice all three persons of the Trinity are confessed already. This is a bit of a, a micro apostles creed very early on in the church. Yes, it's true. The church didn't necessarily have all the vocabulary to describe the Trinity because, well, it's hard to describe the Trinity. But indeed, the nuggets are there. The kernels are there for Trinitarian theology that becomes the cornerstone of Christian orthodoxy. All right, so that's our confession that we have to anchor us. Now Paul goes on to talk about the gifts that we have to anchor us so that we might maintain the unity. Verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, Paul says parathetically, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Indeed, the first thing we're told is that we are recipients of grace. Indeed, every Christian has that in common. You are not a Christian if you do not believe that you do not need grace. It's just a fact. Grace is what unites us all. We all stand on level ground before the foot of the cross, the old saying goes. And so Christians are all recipients of saving grace, but not just that, as Paul will go on to detail, we are all recipients of the grace that then gifts us. Every single Christian has been gifted by God, whether you recognize it or not, whether you know it or not, God has told us that all Christians in parts of his body have different gifts. And these gifts are meant to be used for the good of the church, as we'll see in just a little bit. But it's not just grace that we're, talked to, that we're told here. We're also told why we've been given such things, and that is because we've been rescued. Yes, that's what Paul means when, when he quotes uh, from Psalm 68, verse 18, saying, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That is a rescue passage. What do I mean? Well, 
If you go back to the psalm that this is quoted from, it really depicts a triumphant warrior coming back from battle. And what would happen typically when the warrior, the general, the king, whoever would come back from a triumphant battle is all of the city would go to the city gates and they would welcome him and they would give gifts to him in celebration of his great victory. You would expect that that would be the way that this goes here. In fact, if you read Psalm 68, 18, you can go there in your Bible right now. You're going to see that the original Psalm says that, that people gave gifts to the warrior king that in celebration of his victory. But Paul does something very interesting here. Paul actually changes the word. Now there is some evidence that there's some other translations of this Psalm in which it was changed prior to Paul. That's true. But I think Paul is using this. I think Paul does this for a very specific reason. I think Paul wants to emphasize something. He changes the language from receiving gifts from men to gave gifts to men. What's the big idea? That this is a triumphal warrior unlike any triumphal warrior in history. Instead of leading his captives into the city so that they might go to prison or might be enslaved, this triumphant warrior leads his captives, leads those who were once his enemies, makes them friends, and then bestows gifts on them. He doesn't wait for gifts to come to him, but he throws gifts out to them. It's a glorious gospel picture. And so one way or another, what this is depicting for us is either his incarnation or his descent into hell. But either way, the big idea is that in his victorious ascent back up to the throne of God the Father, he liberates captives. He sets sinners free. That's the big idea. But he's not done there. He also continually intercedes for his church. As Hebrews says, he didn't just sit at the right hand of the Father, but now, consequently, he is able to save us to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Yes, he does. How secure are you, Christian? How assured are you that right now, right now, the very Son of God has your name on his lips? I mean, your sins can't be held against you. His wounds are constantly present and his righteousness is imputed forever to you. And he's interceding for you right now. Wow. Folks, he gives good gifts to men and women. And not only that, he raises up ministers to serve his church. He gives servants that they might be able to guide his flock. He doesn't just leave his sheep shepherdless, but he raises up under shepherds that have various offices. Now, I won't go into the details about the various offices here. That's for another devotion sometime. But he lists five offices in this, in this part, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, they each have different giftings and different roles, but nevertheless, the point of it is all the same, that the church might be built up. And that's what we lead to in conclusion here, which is the purpose of the gifts of the church. You might be asking, like, what's the point? Well, the point is found in verses 12 through 16. Why does he give these gifts? Why does he say to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body in, held together excuse me, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Indeed, what is the purpose of these gifts? Well, that the saints might be equipped, that they might have the tools necessary to walk out the rest of their days as Christians, that they might have the tools necessary to maintain the, the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. Indeed, that, that we might be able to be humble with each other and gentle with each other and loving and forbearing with one another. Indeed, through this, the body is built up. And these, as the ministers minister to the congregation, the body is built up. But folks, what, what really this is all about, uh, as Paul alludes to in the very end here, the purpose of the gifts to the church is so that the body, so that you and I would know what we believe and why we believe it. And then in turn, we would share that with each other and build each other up. In other words, all of this, the fuel that we need, what the minister is sent to do, what the gifts are that he has to give away are the word and the sacraments. As the word is preached, the body is nourished. As the sacraments are administered, the body is nourished and strengthened and built up. And folks, it is all gift. It is all gift. Indeed, God will ensure that his body is built up. Yes, there will be imperfections. Yes, there will be struggles with sin. Yes, we won't do it perfectly. It's true. Nevertheless, he is faithful to complete the job he's begun. Paul says this kind of thing over and over and over again. So let's review. What are the words of law in our passage today? Well, first of all, of course, you have walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's law. Hum be humble. That's law. Be gentle. That's law. Be patient. That's law. Be tolerant. Be loving. Law, law, law. That's and and by the way, we should say amen to that. I want to be humble. I want to be gentle. I want to be patient. I want all these things. Yes, yes, yes. We ought to strive for it. That's what we ought to do. True. But we also hear in this word a reminder that we aren't. So even as we amen what this says and desire that we would display these characteristics with one another, we're also aware that if we were to be judged for our salvation based on how well we do these things, we'd be damned. Indeed, we don't seek to do this to be saved. If we did, we would be in a horrible situation. We would fail and we'd be damned. No, we seek to live this way because we are saved and that changes everything. The pressure's off. And indeed, that 
that really is what the rest of the passage is about for the church. What's the gospel for the church? That we have been granted a common confession, that we have been delivered from sin, death, and hell by the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, that we have been gifted by Christ, each one of us with specific gifts. We have been granted ministers to build us up and to keep us on the path that the word has laid out for us. And we have been promised all throughout scripture that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And so the spiritual growth of the church will happen. Yes, it will, because Jesus is faithful to his bride. I've read the end of the story, and it turns out there will be a wedding feast. And the bride that's being depicted in that story is indeed this church, yes, filled with sinners and saints right now, with sinner saints, nevertheless, one day, to be perfected as we stand before him in his kingdom. All right, folks, that is it for today. I hope you have been blessed by today's long gospel devotional. May God richly bless you as you go on with your week, and I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday.